Welcome to The Paleo View. I'm bestselling author and co-creator of realeverything.com, Stacey Toth. I focus on being healthy inside and out through real life, food, and talk. I'm Dr. Sarah Ballantyne, New York Times bestselling author and creator of thepaleomom.com. I'm passionate about improving scientific literacy around public health topics. I like hashtags and bone broth. And I'm just a super nerd. Welcome back, listeners. You are on episode 316, if I've done my math right. I'm Stacy, and Sarah are here, and we're excited that you're going to join us again. We're not sure why. (laughs) No, we know why. We're going to drop some science knowledge bombs. And this week is super extra special because I'm pretty sure Sarah's going to get in a soapbox. I mean, I have like, like all caps, like anger points in my <laughs> notes. P.S. She was texting me while she was preparing these notes over the last few days, letting me know how steamed she was about uh, this topic. Now, so to be fair, this was a topic that we um, we got these questions around the time that we did our uh, veg- vegetable folks were focused show early on in the year. And we, we did a couple of shows back to back that were on the importance of high vegetable diets and, you know, going through some of the science of raw, you know, raw vegetables versus cooked vegetables. And we'll put links to those old shows in the show notes in case you missed them or you want to go back and listen to them. But they, they engendered the sort of natural follow-up, which boils down to like, what about this carnivore diet thing? And at the time we talked about you know, oh, well, we could do like yet another follow up to this topic and uh, talk about these, you know, carnivore diet questions. And I think we sort of agreed at the time we we felt like we had really like maybe not directly answered them, but like most of that information, you know, if we, if we go over like why eating lots of vegetables is crazy important, you know, surely that like the natural conclusion is then all meat diet would be missing out on this very, very important thing for health. Um, the reason why we're doing this show now though, is uh, my social media and email has not stopped with these questions. It seems to be um, something that is really, uh, it's a persistent fad and it's one in which the claims are getting ever more grandiose. It can cure autoimmune disease. It can help you, right? It can help you lose weight. It can do all of these amazing things. And so because my followers are so tuned into therapeutic diets, um, it's becoming now, uh, you know, this, this not just a question of, you know, well, I understand vegetables are important, but is this, a, does this have still have therapeutic value? You know, we're very used to now thinking of, uh, short-term therapeutic interventions is maybe being different than a long-term health diet. And even though the autoimmune protocol is completely nutrient sufficient and you can do that healthily over the long term, uh, we still have this other collection of dietary strategies that fall under sort of the short-term intervention. And so the question is basically through the claims of the people who are espousing this diet are um, – 
getting some really thoughtful questions from my followers who are trying to understand what the mechanisms might be, you know, how could this work? And that means that it really feels like to me that this is something that I really want to dig into in detail, um, not because I love going on soapboxes um, and huge long rants, which I have a strong sensation that I, I will, but um, but rather it, it's hit this point of it's not just enough now to say that vegetables are important. It's It's now talking about the merits or in this case, complete lack thereof of uh, uh, this dietary strategy that's that's gaining traction in the alternative health community. Yeah, I will say that when you mentioned wanting to cover this topic, my response was, well, obviously, we've done how many vegetable shows? <laughs> I couldn't yeah. believe that we were still kind of on this topic. Um, but to be fair, I know that there's a lot of different kind of information out there. And so I'm coming from the perspective that I already have in my head about my personal opinion on this. So I think it'll be good for you to go into the science, but maybe we could just start on where this began. Cause well, I remember hearing about this years ago. I think I actually watched a video online of the man and his family talking about how they only ate steak. Um, and his family. And his family, as I specifically texted you today, that's what got me. Is, uh, anyway, I'm not going to, I'm going to try really hard to not make judgments because I do believe that as parents, we genuinely believe in the things that we're doing are the best for our family. But mm -hmm. if you're listening to this podcast, then I hope that you are an educated person who is doing research on what those things are for your family, for you. Um, and to me, I immediately was like, well, this is not going to work. Like you need nutrients. Where are you getting your nutrients? Your, your macro is not your micro nutrients. And I think that's, you know, what I remember about that video. So I have absolutely no idea what has happened to bring this back to the surface. So maybe you can read these questions and get me up to speed <laughs> so that I'm prepared um, for what it is we're about to dive into. So I grabbed two questions and um, they're pretty much the same question, but I'm still going to read both of them. And um, I bet you can guess why I'm going to read both of them. Might it have something to do with people being nice? Yeah, a little bit. So um, let's start with Anna's question, who starts, you guys, she's really excited. She's writing in all caps. So I'm just trying to put that emotion into with the, an into, exclamation point. Right? It was you guys. Uh, you two seriously create my favorite podcast ever. I don't have an autoimmune disease or any serious food allergies or restrictions, but I'm still obsessed with the paleo view. I seriously look forward to Fridays, not because the weekend is nigh, but because I have a new episode to geek out to. Aww. The level of sass and science is absolutely perfect and makes me literally laugh out loud every time. I always end up listening to each episode multiple times to tide me over until next Friday comes around. I also love listening to some of your older podcasts and hearing the changes in your lives, not just what you're doing or what your books are that you're writing, but I can literally hear how your health has improved over the years with your diets. The level of energy, focus, and positivity has increased so much since the earlier episodes, not that the early ones were bad by any means. They've just kept getting better. It shows me just how impactful the diets you promote and live by are. 
It is such a motivation to keep on trucking through my journey to better health, even though it's hard and I break down and buy that box of Oreos. I know that I can always jump back on the paleo bandwagon without being too hard on myself because of you two lovely ladies. You don't hide problems you face, and I can point to them and say to myself, it's not just me. So motivating. I love it. Did you pay her money? I did not. Because <laughs> I'm I, like, this can't be right. She can't I, be talking about us. I'm just like, this is the best intro to a question ever. And I'm reading the whole thing. All because- right, Anna, you say that you like it when we keep it real. So let me just tell you, Oreos? Really? Like, that's what you're going to go for? Oh, no, I get it. I get it. That was my binge food before. Really? I like a box of or I know I totally that was when I discovered I had borderline type two diabetes. I had just eaten half a box of Oreo cookies and felt oh terrible and tested my blood sugar. I I totally am with Anna on the Oreos. All right. Well, it's not paleo, but I have had Trader Joe's gluten free Jojo's and there's a couple of <laughs> other brands that make those Oreo ones, type those ones cookies. Have, so the Trader Joe's ones have dairy. So as a f- household that can't, yeah, tell you which ones we get that are all, they're not paleo guys. I'm just oh. saying it's not paleo, but we buy the glutino ones because they're dairy yeah, free. Okay, and yeah, yeah. That was the other brand I was thinking of. But honestly, so I've tried both of those and clearly we're not sponsored by these brands. <laughs> I am like, these aren't even worth eating for me. Um, I, I have my weaknesses, but Oreos, not it. Uh... I still like them and I cannot have them in the house. So there so you go, Anna. We're keeping we it We buy real them with for you. like, uh, like if I'm taking the kids for a six hour hike, that'll be like a treat that we get. And I'll literally have like a little baggie with four Oreos in them for each person on the hike so that we're not, like, I have to make sure that the extras of whatever we have are like totally hidden away from me because I'll just, you know, just one, just two, just seven, just, I just, I keep going back and it's, it totally triggers my binge eating disorder and I recognize it. And sometimes I still buy them and then I just don't buy them again for a while because typically what happens when I buy them is we eat the entire, like it's three rows and a plasticky thing. We eat all of it in a day. Well, see, Anna, you wanted you wanted to get the real from us. There, you had it. Yeah. You got it. All right. It what is, is really so? What not is she? Just Anna. Oh yeah, yeah. So it's not just a, a gushing thing, right? She's no. got a question. Yeah, she's got an actual question. So she says. Anyway, on to my question. <laughs> my husband has heard from several successful people who swear by a carnivore diet. Zuko Wilcox, for example, it's a diet that cuts out plant foods, which to me sounds absolutely horrendous. But he wanted to try it because he has a much higher need for protein than I do and is usually craving red meat. I told him he was crazy, but spent the next two days essentially shoving red meat down his throat. This convinced him that consuming only meat was maybe a little much, and he's back on the green wagon with me. It did leave me wondering, though, as to the potential for a carnivore diet to work with some people. Meat has all 20 amino acids, and if you include organ meat, then I wonder if you could cover all your bases for vitamins and minerals. I'm curious, is there any validity to such a diet if done right? Or if it is just slowly breaking down the body by depleting the consumer of some or several things. Thank you so much to all for all of the work and personality you put into each podcast. Now bring on the sass and science. I've got so many things and I can't, I mean, I can't even imagine in your 
47 pages of notes here, all of the vitamins and things that you're going to break down. But you, you said you have one more question on it as well. I do. Uh, because Janet also, uh, she also wrote a question about the carnivore diet. And she asked some other like specifically good questions that I want to get into. And she also says some nice things. So we're going to start with, we're also going to read out Janet's question. All right. So, Janet writes, first off, I want to say thank you. That's also in all caps, so I have to put in the all caps excitement. To Sarah for the AIP. I'm on day 253, and I've learned Not that so she's much. counting or anything. Not, not that she's <laughs> counting. And I've learned so much about my body in that time. I'm really hoping she had to do some math to figure out 253 and that she doesn't just have, like, a, a calendar. I imagine but, her kind of, like – Tom Hanks scratching away days on a rock like <laughs> when can uh, I have eggs again <laughs> uh, through the reintroduction testing process I've been able to identify the foods which caused which caused so many of my health issues joint pain fatigue postnatal drip GI distress acne etc it's such a weight that has been lifted off my shoulders and then there's your podcast in general. I love listening to you too. I love your body positive, health focused, science based approach. You're funny, engaging, and informative. But on to my question. I have an air heart for for Janet. Thanks, Janet. I also love that like Janet did the exact same thing that Anna did of like thank yous and then like a transition that says and now my question and I just, I've okay. learned what you like so here I will give it to you uh, the magic sauce for getting your question read on the show uh, as I mentioned I've been on the AIP for quite a while now and was on a more general paleo diet for years before that I think I know a bit about healthy eating at this point and understand the general concepts but I've been hearing about the carnivore diet lately and it's leaving me stumped I've heard anecdotes about it curing autoimmune disease, I'm assuming because it cuts out some of the same foods AIP does, plus a whole lot more, making people feel younger, people losing weight, and somehow also still feeling healthy. Someone close to me, no, this isn't a friend who wanted me to ask you this question, is considering it. And before I scream, no, I thought I'd see if you ladies have any input. What's the science? Is there any? Shouldn't they all get scurvy? How can they not be incredibly sick without vegetables in their life? I know if anyone can break this down, you ladies can. Well, if someone can, it's you. <laughs> I'm just here to nod and give verbal high fives. So there's that. All right. Let's start with the history of this carnivore diet. Um, the diet was pioneered by Sean Baker, a former orthopedic surgeon who, for the low, low price of $49 a month, will coach you to eat red meat and nothing else using his carnivore training system. Uh, that should be a red alert right away. Um, he is... Um, he is a person who he started with ketogenic diet. He didn't like it. And so he developed, and I, I use air quotes here, the carnivore diet as a better alternative to the ketogenic diet because the high protein supports lean muscle mass. Um, and right there, I just want to sort of pause and point people back to our show about the importance of insulin signaling beyond glucose and why it's important to consume more carbohydrates and also our, our way back show about the adverse effects of ketogenic diets um, because we've, we've covered that thoroughly. 
we sort of already covered the the very uh, extreme limitations of a ketogenic diet. But I think it's uh, I, I said former orthopedic surgeon, and I did not say Dr. Sean Baker, uh, and that's because uh, Sean Baker's medical license was revoked in 2017 in part for, and I'm using air quotes here, but like because I'm actually quoting incompetence to practice as a licensee. Uh, so he actually, it, in part, I think, because of his carnivore thing, his his medical license was revoked. Um, and yet that certainly does not seem to have stopped people from taking his advice. And in part, this is because Sean Baker holds two indoor rowing world records Despite eating mostly ribeye steak, a little bit of ground beef thrown in there for the last few years. Um, And so, you know, because his all meat diet hasn't affected his athletic capacity for this one person, uh, he has attracted a very large following of people who are just ready to hop on the carnivore train. And here's where I... Okay, so let's back, let's back up and talk about the, here's the scientific evidence. How many scientific studies have been done in all meat diets for humans? Uh, one case study. Um, it was a case study was done by the Arctic explorer whose name I will mispronounce, but I will try anyways. Viljamur Stephenson. Um, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, so I'm just going to go Stephenson, Mr. Stephenson from now on. He was an Arctic explorer. He was very impressed with the native Inuit diet and um, how you know healthy they were. And when he got back from spending time with the Inuit, he and a buddy underwent a series of studies on the effect of an all-meat diet in man. It was published in 1930, so that's a few years old. Um, and uh, I think it's – we'll get into the fact that his all-meat diet didn't actually look anything like what the Inuit were eating. Um, so he followed this all-meat diet for a year thinking he was eating like the Inuit. And meanwhile, that's not what the Inuit consume. Um, but they – they followed this diet for a year. They were followed very, very closely by the Bellevue Hospital Center in New York City. Um, and he was they did a lot of blood testing, other kinds of testing. But it's sort of important to note here that this study was done nearly 90 years ago. It was long before we had the the testing now that would be routine, like cholesterol, you know, lipid panels, like uh, C-reactive protein, like kidney and liver disease markers, right? They were able to do um, some interesting markers in terms of his metabolism. Um, I read the paper today. They were able to look at things like his blood pressure, but their their ability to really quantify the effect on him was fairly low. So in this one study that was done 90 years ago, uh, Stephenson consumed Nothing but meat uh, and the meat fat, but he also consumed quite a large amount of organ meat. So that was something that he had learned from the Inuit was the value of organ meat. So he was actually consuming things like brain, like raw liver, um, like raw brain. So he was actually consuming also the, the raw meats uh, and raw 
organ meat is actually a really good source of vitamin C. So one of the things that was interesting, it totally shocked all of the scientists that were following him that totally expected him to develop scurvy within a couple of months is he did not. So that was one of the main takeaways of this paper was like, if you consume this all meat diet, surprisingly, you won't get scurvy. But that really has to do with the fact that he ate a uh, really snout to tail, huge amount of organ meat. Back to Mr. Sean Baker. He's not eating organ meat. Neither of his followers. Neither is he doing anything to quantify the effect of his all meat diet on his health other than he's still rowing and working out. So he's still muscular and he's still physically fit, but he has not done any blood work to check his cholesterol, his triglycerides, inflammation markers. And he's done the, the podcast circuit to, you know, tell everyone about his new book that's coming out and whatever, and why everyone should do this carnivore diet thing. Meanwhile, he's an N equals one experiment, which has zero scientific backing to back him up, except for one 90 year old case study that showed that this guy did not get scurvy when he ate meat for a year eating a more nutrient-focused version of Baker's diet. And he's not, he's not approaching it in any, with any kind of scientific rigor. He's recommending it to everybody, saying it will cure everything with absolutely zero proof. I, I, and, and he will go on these anti-science tirades on these podcasts. So he'll, he's literally been quoted as saying like, oh, like – you know, scientists, they, they just make up all their data. You can't trust anything that they just fudge all the results. You can't trust anything they say anyway. But he'll make these claims of like, yeah, because if you eat all meat, then your vitamin C requirements go down, your selenium, your mineral content requirements go down. So you don't actually need to eat all those minerals from vegetables if you're just eating meat with zero scientific evidence to support his claims, meanwhile, completely bashing any scientific study that shows that he's full of it, even though he, I'm really getting upset here because this is the classic example of somebody who uh, uses charisma and the fact that he's got some muscles to sell something to people that's actually going to hurt them and is sowing distrust of science with people who have not been taught the skills to read it for themselves. And it ends up you know, growing not just into this distrust of nutritional sciences, but this distrust of like the scientific method in general, which then feeds into everything else. And I, I cannot understand how this has become a thing that, that, that this one guy who lost his medical license over this has been able to create a fad diet where people are just eating like red meat as the only thing they're eating and 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 people think it's a good idea with like zero evidence <sighs> sorry i understand how you're feeling <laughs> i think what what gets me is and i know that what gets you is that when people give recommendations without science to back it up. It has the potential to hurt people who are, whether it's naive or ignorance or trust, um, it, 
affects other people's health. And it's why you and I have put so much value on ensuring that the recommendations that we give are based on science because you know what, if the science changes and people learn something different later, for example, we've talked before about um, fish oil supplementation and how, you know, over time people learned where, where that was, had a benefit and then didn't, or could be problematic. And, you know, what's, what was thought, what once was thought to be good was then realized hey, a different variation on this. We can't change that the science might give us different information later, but at sure. least we can point to where we gave that recommendation in good faith and the science so that you listeners can make an informed decision and do the research beyond what we bring to the surface for you to make your own choice with your medical professionals. And what's frustrating is that it's not just this person who's doing it based on his muscles. There's a large group of people who sell things specifically in America who do it to prey on people who believe what they sell because they say it is so. And there are a lot of people who will make claims that are unsubstantiated. And when it's, you know, just for weight loss and it's not necessarily actively hurting someone it's easier to kind of forgive and let go. But in this particular case, the individual recommends it for families, knowing that it could cause nutrient deficiency, scurvy. You know, one of the notes that you have here is that people are on online forums talking about how they have constipation and scurvy-like symptoms. And if the answer is, we'll just take this supplement um, and keep eating your steak, that's concerning. It's it's concerning for you and I that the health of those people will be affected for so long because of what your body's hormones do when it shuts down and goes into starvation mode, which is essentially what would be happening. Yeah, and I I think it's worthwhile going through some of their claims. So it's interesting because I hit um, a huge variety of uh, blogs, media articles. I did the all meat diet for 30 days or 90 days. And here was my experience. And there's this huge collection of people who are claiming like, yeah, I did it for this short period of time. And it was amazing. I lost all this weight. And like, let's, you know, like admit that a diet like there is a bunch of studies that show that if you eat the same food over and over again, you lose weight because as you get tired of a food, you naturally eat less and less and less. Um, so there's there's plenty of studies where like they'll have like a, a a nutrient sufficient pablum that they give to people in institutions. And it's right. It's a porridge that they've added vitamins and minerals to to make sure it's got everything that you need. And but that's all people get to eat, and they they you'll watch their caloric intake drop as they get bored of it, and then they'll start losing weight. So like, you're going to lose weight by eating the same thing over and over again. Period. The other thing is that meat is a highly satiating food. It's one of the reasons why paleo typically results in weight loss for people without trying. When you're focusing on highly satiating foods, you naturally eat fewer calories. That's how low carb works. That's how the ketogenic diet works. Right? There's tons of ways to lose weight. And there are uh, definitely ways to lose weight that are healthier, 
that are nutrient sufficient that are not as extreme as this. So um, I, I, you know, I understand the desire for people to have rapid weight loss results, but rapid weight loss is not actually healthy. It doesn't make it easy to keep it off. And if you create nutritional deficiencies while you're losing weight, you're going to cause a host of other problems that are not going to make it a good trade-off. But I, I, so, you know, there's, there's sort of that aspect of this, but the other thing is, you know, they have specific claims. If, if you read these articles and I, I read through many and got myself very riled up as I was researching for this podcast about, well, no, that whole meat cancer thing, again, they're just dismissing science or, um, you know, these claims that if you're eating zero carb, that your nutrient requirements shift. Um, I mean, it's certainly theoretically possible that if you're turning off various, uh, you know, cellular machinery that use nutrients that you might not need as much nutrients from your diet, but there's zero science studies to actually quantify that or to confirm that as an effect. So they have these these various claims. And the, I guess the one that I want to start with is the one that irks me the most because I find evolutionary biology fascinating. I do not use it as proof. So I, I don't believe the paleo diet I, I like it's this is not about historical reenactment when we say, you know, we evolved with this type of diet for two million years. Um, you know, hunter gatherers have these types of diets. They're all super healthy. We must eat that way. I see that as being the hypothesis. And then I see this tremendous wealth of uh, biology, physiology, molecular biology, cellular biology, uh, nutritional sciences uh, research as being the understanding why, understanding the mechanisms, understanding the various pathways, understanding nutritional needs, understanding the link with the gut microbiome, like that to me is the proof. The evolutionary biology, the paleoanthropology, that is super interesting, but it is not the proof. But I, like I do, I find it really interesting. I find it, uh, you know, I, I love reading about those kinds of studies. And so I find it very interesting that starter rationale for the carnivore diet is look at all these examples of hunter gatherers that only eat meat inuit always being at the top of the list and i know we've talked about the inuit not being ketogenic before in the con you know in the context of uh also my concerns with a ketogenic diet and again i'll point people to previous podcasts but um but they're, they're they hardly ate pure meat. They actually went to pretty, you know, big extremes to uh, gather foods and to round out their diets on gathered foods. They consumed a variety of seaweeds, including like kelp and algae, plankton from whales' stomachs. Um, they gathered a, a bunch of different types of, of plants, fireweed, sorrel grass, flower blossoms, uh, mosses, a variety of different berries, ground nuts, lichens, willow leaves, sourdough, scurvy grass, rosewood, um, a whole pile of different weeds, greens, tubers, uh, starchy corms. Um, and they literally would um, steal the caches made by tundra mice and voles. So those rodents would harvest corms and like bury them and, and in like little piles under the ground and the Inuit would find them and steal them. So they were literally getting these types of um, plant foods year round, right? 
algaes and seaweeds are available year round. They would do things like consume the partially digested stomach contents of caribou and other land animal animals, which they considered a delicacy. Um, and that was full of like partially digested greens, um, many of which are were too fibrous for humans to actually digest. So they're like partially digested so we can digest them. Like they they go to extremes to um round out their diets with plant foods. Their caloric intake from plant foods is estimated at something like 15%. Um, and then the rest of their diet comes from hunted and fished animal foods. And that goes for like pretty much all of the hunter gatherers that are uh, in sort of the Arctic tundra. And then as you look at other hunter gatherers, that the farther south they go, the higher the proportion of their diet on average comes from uh, uh, meat. So, or comes from plants rather. So for example, if you look sort of northern forest level, which is like the next ring of, of latitude, you're looking at more like 25% of the calories come from plant foods. As you get into whether it's rainforest or uh, grasslands or uh, sort of desert type areas, you're starting to get um, dependence on plant foods in the 40 to 50% range. Um, and you even see, right, there are um, tribes that get upwards of 65% of their calories from plants and not from animal foods. So it varies dramatically, but there's zero, there's, there's no vegan hunter gatherers and there's no carnivore hunter gatherers. Those are not things that exist. There are hunter gatherers that get most of their calories from plant foods, especially in tropical areas where things like coconut grow. And there's hunter gatherers that get most of their calories from animal food, animal foods like the Inuit. But every hunter gatherer society is goes out of their way to gather. And what's really interesting is, as you look at all of these analyses that have been done that look at uh, they're called plant animal subsistence ratios, right? How how much did this society rely on animal foods versus plant foods? And a lot of the data comes from early ethnographic um, explorers. So they're literally people who've gone, like stayed with these tribes and um, you know kept records. And um, it is there's a misogynist aspect here because the ethnographers were men. And they mostly interacted with the male hunters. And there's a number of researchers now who believe that the reliance on, on gathered foods is grossly underestimated for uh, most of these tribes, certainly all of the tribes where the division of labor fell along gender lines. So where the men hunted and the women gathered, they think that there's quite an underestimation of the amount of plant foods that were consumed by these tribes. Uh, whereas if you're in a tribe where the, the division of labor didn't fall quite so much on gender lines, so some of the men would help with the gathering, right? Like climbing up the tree for the coconuts, then the ratios are probably not too far off. But so I, I think it's really important to emphasize there are no carnivore hunter-gatherers. And if you see these claims, uh, just know that they're blatantly false. I found one article that not only made those claims of here's this list of all these carnivore hunter-gatherers, none of which are actually carnivores, with scientific citations at the end. And that is the type of thing 
that bothers me to my core as somebody who reads the science, who tries very, very hard to understand it um, with as little bias as I can possibly bring to reading of science and then wants to write about the nuanced and detailed picture for you and talk about that on this podcast and then provide the scientific references so that you can go read them yourself. The pseudoscience, uh, you know, I'm going to say something and then put these scientific references behind it to make it look valid because I trust that you're not even going to really look at them anyways, bugs me more than just about anything on the internet. And um, and that is exactly what we are seeing with the carnivore diet. I am just, no, I can't. What is wrong with me? <laughs> I got no leave, words. Leave that in. That's fantastic. Because <laughs> that's how I feel about this entire topic. Uh, no, I, I mean, I hear you. I, I think, you know, what's concerning to me is beyond just the carnivore diet, right? So let's say there's a handful of people that are willing to go more than 30 days eating nothing but red meat. I, I would like to think that most people start it the way that I think it was Janet's spouse or partner. I can't remember. Um, no, it was Anna, right. Whose um, husband tried it for two days and decided it wasn't for him. I would like to think that most people's bodies are going to tell them, I don't feel great doing this. And, they'll make a different decision on their own. But I think, you know, what's what's more concerning for me is that we've talked before about our concern with a lack of vegetables in particular with something like a ketogenic diet. And I do think that there are a lot of people who walk this line between this carnivore diet approach, which is clearly not what the human body was intended to be consuming. Um, and this idea of as much protein and fat as possible so that you're going to end up with um, potentially maybe not scurvy because you're going to have a vegetable or a fruit or Mm -hmm. citric acid on something that you purchase, but you're going to have severe nutrient deficiency, which is something that we've talked about. So maybe we could talk a little bit about what some of those signs are so that if you have a friend um, or know someone who is jumping into this, you can look for warning signs or talk to them about how they're feeling. And if any of these kinds of symptoms come up in the conversation, um, encourage them to eat more fiber. (laughs) Just just a thought. (laughs) Well, so I think there's, three main things that are missing on an all meat diet that have the potential to be very harmful for health. Uh, So one is vitamin C. And I like that you just brought up that like, if you have this one thing, or if you're consuming, right, we add ascorbate and citric acid to everything. So um, how like how much vitamin C do you need to get in order like to stave off scurvy, right? We don't think about scurvy as being a thing in Western societies. Uh, So I've got some really fun science uh, to share with you on that one. So I think vitamin C is number one. 
Uh, number two is fiber, just fiber in, in general, right? We have talked on the show a bajillion times about the gut microbiome. I'm writing a book about the gut microbiome. So this is something that I'm like deep into the literature on and fiber, both soluble and insoluble is the main food for uh, the best species of gut bacteria. And that's not to say our gut bacteria can't also eat fat and protein. They can. Uh, and different species of bacteria do like a protein or do like fat. So like, it's not that it would completely starve your gut bacteria to be on a, on a fiberless diet, but it, it would definitely skew them. And it's one of the things, you know, we also talked uh, in our collagen podcast uh, a little while ago about, uh, you know, having imbalances in our protein eating gut bacteria that can lead to symptoms. Um, you can imagine that somebody who's starting with gut imbalances, cutting out fiber is going to make them feel like uh, I've got a better, you know, my symptom management is better. Meanwhile, it wasn't fiber that was the problem. It wasn't vegetables that was the problem. It was the diet as a whole, right? This is the all meat diet is not something that people are necessarily going to from paleo. It's our friends who are doing it, right? We're all asking for the people tangential to our lives who are going from a standard American diet or uh, various weight loss, you know, cycling through those diets um, who or somebody who's going from keto and not liking the, the loss of lean muscle mass that happens with that and going to a, a carnivore diet because it seems like a smaller shift to go from eating all of the animal fat to all of the animal protein. Um, so that's the second one is, is fiber. It, it is, it is really important. Science is really conclusive that it is, um, phenomenally essential for health. And then the other one is, is the full range of plant phytochemicals. So we know that these phytochemicals um, have antioxidant, anti-inflammatory, anti-aging, anti-carcinogenic. So they, they protect against cancer. They um, can help protect against DNA damage, for example. They have a variety of really important um, pro properties that are strongly linked to health. And we only get plant phytochemicals uh, – ironically, from plants. And so these are sort of the three things that I think are things that we predominantly get from or we can only get from plant food or predominantly from plant food that is uh, strongly missing in a, the carnivore diet. It's also hard to get enough folate, enough vitamin E and enough vitamin K without plant foods. And so um, I think it's that's really important. The other thing that's really interesting to me, I've been reading a lot for my book, is that our gut bacteria – um, actually convert a lot of the phytochemicals that we consume into bioactive forms that are beneficial for us. So it's actually the, also that combination. It's not just about a phytochemical supplement. It's that combination of fiber and phytochemicals. So you're feeding the right types of bacteria and then you're giving the phytochemicals um, bacteria love to, to um, basically consume them. They metabolize them into things that are super beneficial for our health. So it's that entire system that is not being nurtured with a diet that is devoid of plants. So I, I, I think it's those three things. And let's start with vitamin C because um, I've seen so many, I did the carnivore diet and I did not get scurvy, right? I, like I, 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 I saw at least a dozen of those sort of like anecdotal, 
I did, you know, it must be good. It must be a good diet because I didn't get scurvy. And of course, this is what shocked uh, the early, you know, researchers who were following Stephenson and his friend on their meat only diet, you know, 90 years ago. And they expected them to get scurvy and they didn't. So part of what's important to explain here is that the symptoms of scurvy are misleading. Um, we can store vitamin C in our body. So how long it takes for scurvy symptoms to develop can vary widely depending on how much you have. And certain situations deplete vitamin C faster. So if you have one of these other situations, you might see symptoms faster. But if you don't, it might take longer. So if you have any kind of an infection, if any kind of um, chronic stress, uh, smoking, for example, they all deplete vitamin C. So you would see scurvy symptoms faster. But as you alluded to, Stacy, it doesn't take a lot to actually um, inhibit scurvy from developing. So uh, these small little bits here and there, for example, if you're taking a multivitamin, that's typically enough vitamin C to prevent scurvy. That doesn't necessarily mean you're getting enough vitamin C to be healthy. You're just not getting the disease associated with severe deficiency. But scurvy is a thing. So um, I, I read a really fascinating study that actually um, was just published a few years ago that looked at, uh, they had a bunch of people from uh, an NHANES uh, study. So that these are these large population studies. They had really detailed diet data and they looked at, you know, how much vitamin C they were consuming. And then they also tested them for vitamin C deficiency and vitamin C depletion. And even like consuming, these are people consuming, you know, regular diets. It's not even a, a you know, zero um you know, zero carbohydrate diet, that there was vitamin C deficiency between 5% and 17% of, of their populations. It was more in younger people and less in older people, which was really interesting. Um, and while they didn't do diet analysis, um, I read a really interesting article that commented on this study saying that their their postulation, again, this wasn't done in the analysis, was that this increase in um, vitamin C deficiency uh, in younger people was due to low carb. Like that was that was their whole thing it was like, you know, low carb, if, if you're doing this without eating a ton of vegetables is a is a vitamin C deficient diet, and that's going to lead to vitamin C deficiency. So that's, that is minor scurvy. So going through a lot of the symptoms. So like, the thing is, is when scurvy first starts, uh, which typically takes about a month, so it takes about a month for, for most people to go through their vitamin C stores, that might take longer if you have a little bit of a top of a vitamin C, if you don't have these factors that are draining your vitamin C, it might be less if you didn't consume a lot of vitamin C before. Um, but the initial symptoms are not what we think of when we think of scurvy of, you know, we think of like the sailors, right? Losing their teeth and whatever. But the, the, the minor symptoms that's, that are like the starting point are generally feeling unwell, fatigue, loss of appetite, nausea, diarrhea, fever, painful joints and muscles, and small pinpoint bleeding around hair follicles visible on the skin. And those are the type of symptoms that someone might not even go 
to the doctor or if they go to the doctor, the doctor may not do testing because it looks like the flu, right? It looks like something infectious that's, that's going to resolve. And so that is how it starts. Um, it can take substantially longer to become severe scurvy, which is the thing that we all think about from historical dramas and reading various, you know, books and whatever. So the, uh, you know, swollen, spongy gums that are prone to bleeding, the loose teeth, the bulging eyes, uh, the severe bruising, the brownish tint to the skin, scaly skin, um, the hair that breaks off, the slow healing wounds, um, the uh, bleeding and swelling in the joints, um, all of those symptoms are what we see in severe scurvy. And that's very, very hard to um, it's very, very hard to get to that point in modern society because of how easy it is to get those small amounts of vitamin C that would stop you from getting there. Yeah. Um, thanks for substantiating what I thought I knew, but also, <laughs> you know, it's, it's interesting to me, this idea of you, maybe you wouldn't go to the doctor for these things. And I think the other thing too, is a lot of those symptoms, correct me if I'm wrong, could also be associated with nutrient deficiency in general, not just scurvy. So maybe not all of them, but for example, brittle hair, um, and those kinds of things and, or dry skin, um, different kinds of things like that. Just, I would, I personally watch those kinds of symptoms for myself to ensure that if I'm getting to the point of a thyroid flare, I see those kinds of symptoms. Um, and it's usually indicative of, needing to focus more on nutrient density and take my liver pills and eat more salads and that kind of stuff. And so um, that's very nominal in the scheme of things when you're focused on uh, that balance most of the time. But I know that if I can see that in myself, if I'm looking out for it, it's got to be something that people who are not focused on that micronutrient density could potentially be seeing not again, not just for this pure carnivore diet, because I'd like to think that most people um, wouldn't feel so great and wouldn't do it long term. But even beyond that, switching to something that is primarily meat focused could result in similar symptoms. So for you, for a loved one, just make sure you're, you're being mindful of that kind of stuff. Yeah, and I I think that you know we we have I I believe talked extensively on the show about the importance of vegetables, the huge amount of scientific literature showing basically the more vegetables you consume, the lower your risk of chronic disease, it extends lifespan. Um it's pretty much the one thing that every health expert can agree on is the importance of vegetables. It's the one thing that every um, diet that actually has scientific evidence to support some kind of therapeutic value has in common. 
Um, and I think that it's really unequivocal, the importance of vegetables. And it's important in part because of the micronutrient content, right? The vitamin C, the B vitamins, uh, the minerals that vegetables have. It's in part because of the um, phytochemicals and their important roles in preventing cancer, reducing oxidative stress, regulating hormones, reducing inflammation, um, right? Helping uh, improve cellular health, right? Those those phytochemicals are super, super important. Um, and then the fiber, right? So, you know, one of the things that's interesting is the like online forums where people are talking about like, oh, I've been doing this for this long and this thing is happening. What do I do? Right. They're mainly talking about things that could potentially look like scurvy or they're worried about getting scurvy and they're they're sort of talking about that or they're talking about uh, GI symptoms, uh, predominantly constipation, but um, you know, major shifts in your gut bacteria can manifest as a variety of different GI symptoms, and that's what the the zero fiber diet is going to do. It is going to dramatically shift gut bacteria. It's going to lower the um, diversity of gut bacteria, um, and it's going to deplete some of the most beneficial strains. And you know, we've we've talked about this again on the podcast many many times. Um, I have a, a relatively recent post called what is the microbiome and why should we care, which I think goes through, uh, all of the important roles that the gut microbiome plays, uh, in detail. And so I just, I, you know, I don't want to belabor this point too much because I think it, it's fairly easy for anybody who's listened to our previous shows on vegetables. And again, we'll put links in the show notes uh, so you can go back and listen to our How Many Vegetables podcast, our What's Better Raw or Cooked Vegetables podcast, and our All About Vegetables podcast, uh, which actually is is from a few years back. Um, but I, th- I think that you know, we, we just have such a tremendous body of scientific literature showing that these things are really important for health, even if you don't die, if you don't consume them. So that's a really interesting addendum here is that fiber and phytochemicals are considered non-essential nutrients. And it's because of things exactly like this, right? Like Stephenson following an all-meat diet for a year, uh, he was getting his vitamin C from organ meat, he was not getting fiber or phytochemicals. He did not die. He was not bad. I mean, the, the health ramifications of non-essential nutrients typically take much longer to manifest compared to essential nutrients. And we don't really have an understanding of what happens for prolonged periods of time if you don't consume them at all. Therefore, they're rendered, uh, they're given this label of, of non-essential, right? So, Essential means you die if you don't have it or you have these right diseases of severe – you can die of scurvy, right? Uh, so diseases of severe malnutrition. Um, non-essential means it's really, really important for health, but if you don't consume it, you won't die. And so fiber and phytochemicals are put into that category, and I think it's important to emphasize non-essential doesn't mean not important, um, these are really, really important for overall health and longevity. Um, we have so, so much rigorous scientific evidence proving the importance of phytochemicals, phytochemical-rich diets, and um, and fiber-rich diets. And uh, and again, right, like these, even the hunter-gatherers who consume most of their calories from meat go out of their way to find and gather those foods that are going to provide them with the fiber and those phytochemicals, even if they're eating all the organ meat to get all their vitamin C. So I think it's, it's really important to, to emphasize that 
these things, even if they aren't essential to life, are essential to health. Here, here. I think that's such an important distinction because I do think that people get confused about essential and non-essential. And the other thing I want to point out is that we all know that just taking a supplement to get your essential um, or to even, you know, get a complete picture, quote unquote, of what that would look like for your health. Your body doesn't digest it if it's not in some sort of synergistic nutrient dense format and of high quality. So I think, you know, what I often see with people who, for example, vegans cannot get certain nutrients without a supplementation um, either because they're in animal products, B12 and K2, for example. Um, you know, you just, you have to be careful when you are not eating the full spectrum of foods. And that is also one of the big complaints with paleo is that, well, without grains, it makes it difficult. And if you're not eating a lot of vegetables, that would be the case, which is exactly why, you know, our recommendation, what we eat, how we approach, um, this lifestyle is with a vegetable heavy approach because as Sarah says, everyone agrees that more vegetables is a good thing. So if we lead with a, you know, vegetable heavy diet, people are a lot more on board, um, <laughs> except I guess the carnivore diet eaters, right. um, with that idea, then, you know, restrictive and removing and all that kind of stuff. So, Hopefully this has been helpful. I know for me, it's just, I'm kind of still reeling my head at the idea that this man and this diet are still out there. I'm, you know, I, I am genuinely concerned for the health and well-being of children who do not eat vegetables. That is a concern for me, whether it's a carnivore diet or, you know, um, chicken nuggets only. I think that there's, um, their little bodies are in so much need of those nutrients. And I don't think that historically until kind of this recent generation that we've seen the long-term repercussions of not being nutrient sufficient at an early age. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can, we can look back at, at science and information in, um, census studies and stuff like that and see the effects of, health long-term from children who were raised during the depression. And so this idea that, you know, with modern day, many children are not being exposed to a full spectrum of nutrients, uh, concern, like that's just as a mother, as, as a person who wants to see the generations to follow flourish, you know, I, I, I'm having a hard time finding the words that aren't super judgmental and negative to say that I have concerns that someone would remove vegetables from a, a child's diet. Like I, and I just, I hope that who, whomever, you know, that might be interested in this can see the value in continuing their child on a, a nutrient sufficient approach. And one of the things that we'll do uh, for those of you who are trying to arm yourself with information for your friends or family members who are thinking about this, uh, because there are a lot of other 
um, you know, sort of uh, rationales that are used for the carnivore diet that are not accurate that we've talked about before on the show that I've written about extensively on my website. Uh, I'll we'll put links to uh, my you know scientific blog posts with tons of citations that tackle a lot of those other important you know arguments that are uh, erroneous for the carnivore diet, but uh, that nonetheless you you may want to arm yourself with information. That whole like humans have a GI tract that look like carnivores. That's not true. Our GI tract is that of an omnivore. It's very very clear. Uh, if you look at evolution, we're clearly omnivore. Any way you look at it, we're very very clearly omnivores. We're not herbivores or carnivores. Um, you know, understanding the importance of vegetable consumption to interfere with the actual very real link between meat and cancer is, and where vegetables come into that is really, really important. We've talked about that on the show before, and we'll put a link in the show notes as well as links to uh, our previous shows on vegetables and why those are so important. Um, I think that you know my, my biggest takeaway from this is uh, this is where – you know, I'm glad that our listeners and readers have continued to ask about this because it it is something that went from something that sounded like uh, this crazy thing that this one guy was doing to, you know, these pseudoscience articles where they're trying to make it sound like there's scientific evidence behind this, where there is absolutely none. And uh, that is where I feel like the best way to combat that type of propaganda is with information. And that is really uh, what I would like to do here is now arm you with uh, not just my um, indignant feelings about how this came to be a thing, um, but also with that really, really vital information so that you can help those people that you care about make better choices. Here, here. Well, thank you for tuning in to this week's The Paleo View. Uh, we're a little more ranty than usual, but if you like the science and uh, enjoyed the show, we'd love your feedback in social media. And if you're especially loving the show, like Janet um, and, oh my goodness, I'm so sorry, Anna, you had such nice things to say. I could have remembered your name more easily. Uh, Janet and Anna, by all means, please leave reviews, five stars, anywhere you're listening and comment and share with us in social media, share the podcast with people who you love. Your referrals are what help us reach a broader audience and we appreciate it immensely. You being here, um, Anna in particular, downloading multiple shows, like I'm giving you three thumbs up over here. Um, that's awesome. Thanks so much for listening, everybody. We'll be back next week. Thank you for listening to The Paleo View. If you enjoyed the show, please take a moment to rate us on iTunes. You can also support us by shopping for our favorite paleo products on the sidebars of our individual websites or by donating through PayPal. All right, uh, so let's keep this one on the 45-minute side. I should be able to do that. Okay. There's, there's, <laughs> there's, and there's that soundbite of you saying, let's do this, and me yawning. Um. <laughs>